Kentucky Last Forum, for preserving American history and the Protestant Reformation, supporting Republican democracy and the popular government, and fighting to maintain political liberty against European imperialism and globalism. Welcome back. Lies are many, the truth is one. But no, I just wanted to get back in touch with you. I intended to speak with you sooner than it's been probably a year since we talked the last time. Um, and a lot of things have happened. It's been a really crazy year. And I just wanted to kind of get with you on some of the current events and updates on some of the really, the really kind of bizarre and and profound changes in, in, in America now that are occurring. So... Um, but yeah, how are things with you? Let's just kind of get, I just wanted to get with you and just check with you and see how things were going on your end. Well, everything's fine. I'm still teaching my class, my private citizenship class, and my tax class, and, and how to um, avoid tax if you're working for the private sector, and then how to restore your status to the pre-March 1933 private citizen where they can't give you emergency war powers, military jurisdiction in these courts. So, I'm teaching that. Well, that's a, that's a good place to start, and I, I've heard you do, um, I've heard some seminar, you know, just little clips and seminars of, of you teaching on that, and I know it's a long, a long course, I really need to, I really need to get, get a look at that and, and get with you on one of your classes, um, but the, the history behind that, as far as 1933, we have to kind of rewind back the tape, uh, you know, the, the history a little bit, back to uh, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, because before the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was a de jure president, a constitutional president of the United States, and then after the the, the Southern Senate uh, senators left the quorum of the legislature, there they couldn't they couldn't run the government anymore, uh, and, and the country was split. And no, 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 they could run the government because the Southern states lawfully seceded. They withdrew their powers that they rightfully uh, committed to the central federal government through their ratification papers. But the three states that resumed the right to reserve to to uh, to resume their powers were Rhode Island, Virginia, and New York by their ratification papers of the Constitution. So if those three states had the right to resume their powers, then all the states had the right to resume the powers. Right. So when the southern states left the Union rightfully with their ordinance of secession, there was still a federal government. It just didn't include those states. So they had every right to continue with their federal government in Washington, D.C., while the southern states formed a new country called the Confederate States of America. Right. And um, the, the Confederate States of America enjoyed a lot of support from Europe because I think that the, the European aristocracy and the, and the power structure there being imperialistic and monarchical, they didn't have an interest in seeing democracy continue to exist in the, in the old colonies in America, in North America. So I think that... Well, the, now, yes. let's, let's, let's correct that. Too. Okay, go ahead. It's the Holy Alliance of 1815... 14, 1815, determined to destroy the United States of America. You're talking about the, the Congress of Vienna. The Congress of Vienna. Congress of Vienna called the Alliances. goes by those two different names. Primary high contracting parties were Russia, Austria, and... Uh, Prussia. Was, I think Prussia. Right. right. So the Jesuits, uh, in controlling those countries, determined to... And Prince von Metternich ran the whole thing. Right. He was not a Malta, Habsburg, and the Jesuits who were in control of that uh, then determined to destroy this heretic nation, 
called the These United States of America. So that's when the plot sets out. This is what uh, what uh, Morse code uh, Samuel Morse wrote about in his cons foreign conspiracy against the liberties of the United States. And then the Jesuits came over into this. They set out to do this, <clears throat> and they tried to do it with the. Uh, they attempted to do it with the War of 1812 using Britain, because remember, Britain is totally controlled by the Jesuits since 1760. Right, and, and I want to point out, I want to point out, I mean, not to break into, you know, because I know that you're laying out the history, but by 1812, this is an interesting time, because this is precisely the time when uh, the Pope at the time is going to, to reinstitute the Society of Jesus, which had been banished, which had been uh, destroyed by a papal bull, I think it was in 1773. That's correct. Uh, Pope uh, Clement Thirteenth, and then the Fourteenth continued yeah. the work. Clement Thirteenth was going to do it. He was poised the night before. Right. He was so therefore Clement the Fourteenth conducted a four-year investigation, and then he suppressed him in seventeen seventy-three, for which he was poisoned. So <clears throat> the Jesuits, of course, then foment the Napoleonic Wars, the right. French Revolution. They did not foment the American Revolution. They had nothing to do with it. The American Revolution is the greatest revolution in world history. It's white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and Baptist Calvinist. Right. And the Jesuits utterly hated it. So, we finally got our liberty by the grace of God and him intervening for us. But uh, then the Jesuits, running King George III, determined that they would continue to try to destroy us. So they used the War of 1812 with the same King George III. And God sent to us great deliverers, particularly... Uh, Sam Smith of Baltimore, mm -hmm. who saved the city of Baltimore. He was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Presbyterian Calvinist. And there was also uh, uh, the great uh, Jackson, Andrew Jackson, who saved New Orleans. So without those two white Protestant Calvinists, we would have lost our country. So the Jesuits then determined, well, we're going to divide the country on the burning question of slavery. So we're going to cause the anti-slavery agitation. Right. And we're going to call for the federal government to, to be against it when the federal government had no power over the domestic institution of slavery whatsoever. Further, the southern states were gradually emancipating their slaves, and they were going to Liberia, <laughs> pardon me, which the... American Colonization Society purchased that land from the tribal chiefs and then built Monrovia, the capital for them. Mm -hmm. And then the black blacks were coming by the thousands to Liberia. And this is covered in Blake's, W.O. Blake's History of Slavery and the Slave Trade. Jesuits said, we can't have a gradual emancipation because we have to use these blacks to destroy the whites of this country. And that's exactly what Jefferson wrote in the paragraph that was to be in the Declaration of Independence that the British, the king, has used these people against us for our annihilation in those general words, but you can read the paragraph. And of course of course the Protestants and, and the, the the you know Baptists and the, the Lutherans and the Puritans that had come to America with their particular sensibilities and their ideals, they weren't they were trying to uh, repatriate the, 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 the former slaves back to Africa and they couldn't just <laughs> put them to death, or they couldn't just exile them, they had to take responsibility for their condition, and I think that that was something that, that, that now that was going to be a burden that they had to deal with. Is that what you're saying, politically? White Protestants are responsible for the repatri gradual repatriation of American free blacks to Africa, because Jefferson said, both races equally free cannot live under the same government. And that you can find in a book called Race and Reason by, by um, 
Carlton Putnam, who was the founder of Delta Airlines. Okay, so we go on, and so the Protestants say, listen, we've got to resolve this problem, and so we're going to gradually emancipate them. But the Jesuits said, oh no, we want, that. We want, a, we want an, a radical emancipation to throw them onto the streets with no protectors, no masters, no education, no property, no nothing. So that would justify socialism with Thaddeus Stevens' Freedmen's Bureau. Mm-hmm. Now start paying for the education of the blacks. When the blacks were already being educated, uh, that's a lie that the Southern masters did not teach them how to read and write. That's a bold-faced lie. You can read about this in uh, Dabney's work in defense of Virginia in the South, who was the greatest Presbyterian theologian of his day. He was, uh, he was on Stonewall Jackson's staff. It seems to me that the, 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 the people that were coming from Africa were in the chains of the, the Islamists, and, and the British Empire, and really the, the papacy, which had been profiting. I remember the George in Georgetown a few years back, the Jesuits had to come out and publicly apologize because apparently yeah. Georgetown was built with slave labor in, in the past. So I, the issue there well, is that uh, yeah. Let's let's cut, cut. What is condemned is the Atlantic Passage, and the black savages in Africa having tribal warfares, conquering another tribe, then holding them for the white slavers to come and pick them up in the Atlantic Passage. So that's what happened. Well, ultimately, the, the, the Zulu, the, the tribes of Africa were, were, were really barbarian. They were cannibalistic barbarian. at the time. So they, never they were still in, ten, in, in huts. I mean, that's where they were at. In, in, in dung huts. That's right. That's where exactly where they were at. And they would, have, they would be there today if it was not for white Protestant evangelists. Right. Now, so, the, my, wait, another point wait, I wanted to, to, to point out is that after they came to America, unlike all the other stops on their way, when they arrived here, they found that the masters, if you want to call them that, in the South, were going to ultimately allow them the privilege of, of, of marrying and ultimately give them homes and, and allow them to, to read the Bible and to have churches. Is that, is that incorrect? That's, no, that's correct. The white masters of the South were benevolent to them. I have blacks in South Carolina. They have an annual annual day where they get out and they have they meet with the children of the masters and they're the descendants of the slaves and they tell the truth of how it really was. And they weren't raping the black women. That wasn't happening. Maybe here and there, but that was not the case because the blacks of the South remained be deep and black. Their skin was very black. So there's none of this race mixing going on in the South. Well, in, in my mind, the, the Southern men and, and, and the Southern families that are there are people who are beholden to the scriptures or people that are going to church every week in their, yeah. in their chapels. They're, yeah. they're not people who are raping or who think that these they're are not, Christian people. They're Christian, Bible-believing people. They're not like the pagan Roman Catholics of the North. Remember, the Roman Catholics hate the blacks. And when they were brought over here by the Jesuits, the Jesuits settled them in the northern cities. Right. Not the southern cities. So, back to the issue again. So, the Jesuits raised the anti-slavery agitation. They're going to use these pagans like William Lloyd Garrison and uh, Wendell Phillips and these people like that that are not Christian men to advocate. There's a higher law. There's a higher law than the Bible. And so, they're communists. Right. And so, they're going to cause this agitation. And the southern states, they, there's a law. It's called the Fugitive Slave Act. And that meaning that it's a federal law that if any slaves escape from their masters and they escape north, they have to be returned. That's the law. So now the communists are advocating, well, slavers are saying they escaped up here. We got Harriet Tubman. That's all communism. So the southern states said, all right, if you're not going to obey the fugitive slave law, we're out of here. And so they, South Carolina is the first. 
And then you have the other states. And finally, the last state to secede is Virginia. And Virginia made the United States. Without Virginia, there is no United States of America. So they didn't want to secede. They seceded the very day Lincoln called out troops against South Carolina. And they said, you're not going to pass through Virginia. So they rightfully seceded and thereby became sovereign nations once again and uh, had their own nation. Okay. So that's a good point. Let's let's jump in there. So with Lincoln, when he was assassinated, ultimately, he had instituted for the first time uh, emergency war powers, if you will, executive orders to in order to govern in order to raise the army, in order to, to make law, in order to, to, to give order and give commands throughout the government. He arrested um, people who were printing newspaper articles that he didn't like. I mean, he, he, he took powers that the presidential uh, branch of the government doesn't have under the Constitution, and, and this would cause the, the Southern, uh, from the Southern perspective, cause them to see that it was, in some level, it was tyrannical, because yeah. they had, the Southern, all the states had given their grant of authority from their state to the federal uh, government, uh, permitting the federal government to exist, and and then if they wanted to take back their their uh, their grant of authority to the the federal government, then it was their it was their power to do so at, at that time. Yeah, that shows you who was right and who was wrong, and it wasn't a civil war. It was a war between two sovereign nations. So it was a war between sovereign nation states, and more particular, the war of northern aggression. Because Lincoln is going to call for 75,000 volunteers to, to stop this attempt to destroy the Union. So he knew he had no power to make war on, on states that were in the Union. And so he called for 75,000 volunteers. So the, 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 the whole hue and cry was, going to, we're going to save the Union. We're going to save and all the brainwashed in the North said, yeah, we got to save the Union. Wait a second. It's a union of consent. It's a compact. In this. That's why there's two senators for each state, no matter how big or small the state is. The Senate's to represent the states. The House is to represent the people of the mm -hmm. states. So... They've had they've had a terrible time trying to take that apart uh, that that system. Now, as you as you're pointing that they out... Have, yes, sir. They, ha they have taken that apart with the third, with the uh, 17th Amendment. Right. When, uh, when it was a direct election for U.S. senators. So now no, the state governments have no say whatsoever in Washington. That's what I was going to point out, that these Union states up in the North have their pride of their blue, that they fought to free the slaves, that they that they, they fought to save the Union. But in the end, in the final analysis, they the Northern states lost their footing politically just as much as the Southern states because now they were all, instead of, instead of being the... the the, the, the authors of the federal government, they're now, they're now the servants of the federal government after the Civil War. Is that not correct? They're the what of the federal government? Originally, they were the authors of the federal government. They instituted and created it to, to serve the states, but in the end, after the Civil War, it seems that they were enslaved by the supremacy of the federal government. That's after the 14th Amendment. Okay. The 14th Amendment is your first benchmark, as you want to remember. The war, the war was waged illegally. It was a war of theft for all the cotton, tobacco, and slaves. It was a war of annihilation, as Jackson said, and that's why he sent his troops on their leave to go back to their homes to raise up seed, because this is going to be a war of annihilation. And uh, then, as that continues, the, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the occupation down there during the Reconstruction for 12 years, from 1865 to 1877, is nothing but rape, pillage, and plunder. They're inciting the blacks to rape the white women, so no white woman's going outside without a gun. 
Um, yeah, the first Ku Klux Klan, 1865 to 1869, to stop this plunder of these Yankee banditti coming down to plunder the place and to steal everything the Southerners had ever worked for. So in, so from your point of view, uh, Pastor Phelps, the, the, the original Ku Klux Klan were going to be men who were trying to protect uh, the South against the plunder of Northern men? Northern soldiers. So they're not, the, the KKK isn't riding around trying to attack black people, but they're no. trying to defend against the, the, the northern right. men. They will down. attack the blacks if they've been raping white women and if they've been stealing because there's no law while they're under military occupation. Well, that's a point of view that you don't hear a lot about as far as the characterization of the KKK. Currently, right. in today's uh, political environment, the, you have. Yeah. The second KKK starts in 1915 in Stone Mountain, Georgia, by Methodist preacher who's a Freemason. So all you ever hear is that about the one where Albert Pike is involved in the creation of the second one. Well, Albert Pike is the one who runs it until ultimately 1915 when it's formally revived. So you can see that it's an occult. It's an occult secret order rather than a protective uh, militia group from. Uh, That's separate. why Nathan Bedford Forrest abolished it in 1869. He abolished it. He says it's too violent. So he's supposed to be the great KKK man, but you're saying yeah. that he abolished the KKK. Well, he abolished it. Gotcha. Yeah. So Nathan Bedford Forrest was, he he also had black men in his cavalry. He had the greatest cavalry in the war. He took 31,000 prisoners. And he told his men, he says, when we win, you're going you're gonna to be free. He had black cavalrymen in his so tremendous cavalry. But then Nathan Bedford Forrest abolished the KKK in 1869 because Ulysses S. Grant had been creating secret KKKs using, using Yankee Union soldiers to commit all sorts of atrocities and violence in the South. Right. These, this was a continuation of the Red Lakes in Missouri, which were Roman Catholic Union Yankee soldiers pillaging and plundering. All right, so this is in, in between all the different political factions and, and the KKK and the Civil War and the freedom of the blacks, all, all these different things happening. Uh, an, an unseen kind of paradigm taking place is this pressure from uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic powers uh, yes. pressing against the, 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 the Protestant and uh, the, the, the powers of free men and Republican government. Correct. Remember, Republican government is Protestant. Right. Federal government is Protestant. National government is Roman Catholic. It's Roman. So in 1868, when they declared the 14th Amendment to be ratified, and it never was, not by three quarters of the states, that's when they made the federal government national because they made federal citizenship that was only for whites. They made it, in turn, broadened it into national citizenship for both whites and blacks. And the whites didn't know that they were getting terribly uh, deprived of their rights. They were only told this is for the black man. But James G. Blaine came out and said, we intend it to be for the white man as well. That's we what, that's that, that kind of where I'm trying to get to. The, the, the point is that after the, the war and the supposed freeing of the, the slaves, uh, in the end, in the final analysis, we all became subservient, whether we were black or white, we all became not, subservient. Not yet. Okay. We became national citizens. The subserviency was started in 1933 right. with FDR. With this proclamation 2040 of March 9th, 1933. This is your second benchmark. All right, so before we jump there, now with with the 
I'm curious about this this commander in chief and this new supremacy in the presidency after Lincoln. Uh, people argue that he would have restored order there, but he was killed, and the next president and the subsequent presidents following took up this power to 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 create executive orders and in, in, in this military uh, emergency powers that the, that the presidency had under Lincoln, and it's continued to this day. So, no, that's not correct. Okay. Uh, after Lincoln, because Lincoln was saved, he was saved shortly before he was assassinated, and he wanted to restore the southern states on the same footing that they had left. He, Lincoln was a friend of the South, and that he wanted to restore the southern states on the same footing that they had, quote-unquote, left. But he's assassinated. Because if that would have been done, that would have totally frustrated the purpose of the Jesuit order in the war. The purpose of the war was not to free the slaves. That was all propaganda. Sherman said, I've never, I didn't come to Atlanta to free the slaves. And he had his soldiers chase them off with swords and shoot them if they tried to follow the Union Army. No, they came down there for the destruction of the white Protestant South. That's why they decimated their cities. So in the end, they could then justify creating a new nation with a new government, because when they made federal citizenship national, the federal government became a national government. That's why we don't have a federal government today. It's a national government. So there, there you have it. So at this point... Right, right. What you're discussing there, they're they're going to before the war, men and women are are citizens of their of their nation or their state. Like for instance, I'm in Florida right now, so I would have been uh, maybe you know if you were in Pennsylvania, you would have been a citizen of Pennsylvania. But after the war, yeah, you were you were a citizen of Pennsylvania, which is a part of the federal the federal uh, uh, no, union. No, you're, you're a citizen of Pennsylvania first, and thereby a citizen of the United States. It was primary state citizenship, subordinate U.S. citizenship, and that. So somehow the government of Washington, D.C. ends up in control of, of, the, of the, the national government of the entire, of, of, all, of all the different uh, states so, uh, after the war. I'm trying to understand how, how uh, they ended up, how Washington, D.C., as a federal, and, and as you said, as a national government, ends up controlling the citizenship of all the, the, the subsequent. You would think that the, the northern states would have maintained their sovereignty on some level, but they didn't. Let me help you. They're still sovereign. All the states are still sovereign. After, in 1868, when I was declared to be ratified, which was a sin and a crime, then in 1871, Washington, D.C. is given a government. It was not incorporated. It was incorporated in 1820, but it's given a government in 1871. It's given a, a mayor, it's given a federal court, it's given a, it's given a special government. Are you talking about John Carroll's old farm? No, no, I'm talking about... As far as the, the property about, of Washington, D.C. Yeah, I'm talking about Washington, D.C. was created, what, in uh, 1789, thereabouts? Well, that's but when, the, as far as the Constitution, but before that, all it was was a, a, a government, uh, it was a... What was Washington, D.C.? Well, of course, John Carroll gives a certain of his property from Maryland to make the District of Columbia. But that doesn't mean the Jesuits were involved in creating the government. The Jesuits were suppressed. They didn't exist anymore. Right. That's why Washington spoke to them. But um, going on here in 1820, Washington is the city. It becomes incorporated. It's going to be the, the capitals moved there from Philadelphia to Washington in 1801. Okay. So it's moved there in 1801, and that's why well, you have your high Scottish right Freemasonry there. You got the southern jurisdiction right there in the in uh, Washington, or out of Charleston, but it's 
very much controlling Washington. So the the uh, yeah the government given to Washington D.C. in 1871. That's when Washington. The foundation is for Washington to be Rome on the Potomac. Right. So they create a nation out of what was once a confederation of sovereign nation states. All citizenship now is not for just whites; it's for whites and blacks and later Asians. So we're creating an empire out of the little white Protestant federal republic, and we're going to create an empire from sea to shining sea. So as soon as after after the war, they start the Indian Wars from eighteen sixty five to eighteen ninety. Yeah, I wanted so to get your perspective on that. Uh, as far as President Jackson. Um, was going to ultimately have a lot to do with getting the, the Indians set up with their own places to live, their own territory, their own Indian lands. And then right at the end of his presidency, when they were getting ready to kind of make that happen, another president was a John C. Calhoun, a Democrat, takes Martin, over. Martin Van Buren. I always yeah. say the wrong guy. But yeah, Martin Van Buren. And then during right at that moment, they force marched the these Indian nations who were in agreement with this with the with the uh, with the treaty that they made. They force marched him in the dead of winter. How, how, how did that happen? Okay. Jackson left office. He was no longer president. So we never blame Andrew Jackson for the Cherokee Trail of Tears. Ever. That's Martin Van Buren. And furthermore, if you read uh, Thomas Benton's work called 30 Years View, and I quote it in my book, Vatican Assassins, he will tell you that this is the greatest, a great deal for the Indians. And they're Indians. They're not Native Americans. They're Indians. And so the Cherokee had half the tribe had already moved on the other side of the Mississippi. And so you have this northwestern corner of Georgia that they purchased from the Cherokee for $12 million. $5 million of it's in gold coin. And the other $7 million is in assets and land. And they gave them, I forget how many acres of land on the other side of the Mississippi. It's a, it's a deal completely in the favor of the Cherokee. But you have that wicked sinner, Martin Van Buren, and his right-hand man, who's a Jesuit coacher named Poinsett, Secretary of War. It's Poinsett that's the ones that's responsible for forcing this into they, they never would have forced them to in such dangerous conditions where if they tried to get out of it and tried to flee, they would shoot them and they forced them in this this uh, trail of tears, this death march. And that was right. never part of, of Andrew Jackson's plan at all. Is that correct? Not at all. Not at all. Jackson, Jackson uh, helped oversaw the negotiation of that treaty. He was good to him. And you know why? Because the Cherokee, when it came to the war between the states, guess which side they side on? The South. The Cherokee were the last nation to surrender to the North. They fought their hearts out on the South because they knew the federal government was a tyranny, as it had treated them so in their Trail of Tears march. So, no, Jackson was a great president. He was good to the Cherokee. And he was never blamed for that. And they gave him a fair deal, and they were betrayed. They, they gave him a fair deal, and they were betrayed when Jackson had to leave office. Yeah. That's right. Remember, it was a $12 million deal. Get my book. Read it. And I quote, or get Thomas Benton's work. It's in volume two, I think. 30 years view. So that's what happened there. So they started the Indian Nation Wars. And they started that in 1865. It's just, just after the war. And guess who they made the general of the army? Roman Catholic Philip Sheridan, and you know who his, and he's one of the he's one of the satraps that was under that kept uh, the South under military occupation. One of the five Yankee Union generals that divided the South into five different regions. 
as conquered territories. Daddy Stephen says we're going to treat the South as conquered territory. And when that goes into play, then you have the Lieber Code. So the Lieber Code is in full force and effect as long as the South is under military government. So what happens then is you're going to, they're going to start the they have a war between the labor Indian wars and Sheridan's advisor is the Jesuit Pierre de Schmidt. Right. And so Sheridan and Pierre de Schmidt are at the filthy, wicked Treaty of Fort Laramie that pillaged the Indian nations that were involved in that treaty. So from your point of view, I mean, as far as this Roman Catholic animosity towards the Indian tribes, I mean, from, I guess, from that religious perspective, these peoples were just heretics, they were just, you know, they were just non-Catholic uh, uh, people that could be destroyed. They were to be conquered and subjugated, just as the Jesuits had conquered and subjugated the Guarani Indians in Paraguay. And throughout South America, there was 59 reductions, which are communist reductions. The Jesuits perfect communism in the South America for 150 years on the Paraguayan reductions, and the Guarani Indians number 300,000. And they were all put to work as slaves. They're making clocks, and they're tidying, uh, tanning hides. Uh, doing all mining silver and putting it all into international commerce with the Jesuit fleet of black ships. Right. So the Jesuits wanted to use the American Indians the same way, and they wouldn't submit. So since you're not going to submit, boy, we're going to kill you. So that's what Pierre de Smit was doing all over the West. That's he, right. He was out there. He he looks like he helped the the uh, Mormons right. set up out there in Salt Lake City when it, before it was a state. Um, he was pretty busy. He was meeting with Albert Pike. <laughs> That's right. He was. He met that. Uh, he met Joseph. He met uh, Brigham Young at Council Bluffs, and in, in uh, Iowa, and told him he need to go north of the Great Salt Flats. There would be no Mormon church in Utah if it wasn't for the Jesuit Pierre Schmidt. And of course, then Albert Pike. He's riding all the high. He's the he's the Pope of Freemasonry here, and of course, he's in contact with the Jesuits. Uh, Giuseppe Mazzini in Italy, the chief Freemason there, and also uh, with uh, Schmidt also. It's interesting because when you piece that history together out there with the Mormons, as they're, they're, they're kind of being rejected by normal society and they're being pushed out into the, the wilderness a little bit with their, their hand carts and they're trudging along through the, out to the west. And um, during that time, apparently, they came across some, some uh, Protestants that were, were heading south and they ended up, right. this is right after they met with uh, Pierre de Smith, they went and butchered a bunch of Protestant settlers. How'd that well, come the about? Menor's Massacre. Right. That's what it's called. And you can read all about it in a book that I just recently got down south when I was in Missouri. can't remember the name. It's the Mountain Menor's Massacre and they raped and pillaged and destroyed those white Protestants and uh, tried to hide their burial that they didn't do. And that was all ordered by Brigham Young. Right. And Freemason. The other thing was that uh, the, the Masonic, those Masons were rejected by society because they were practicing polygamy. Mm -hmm. Polygamy, you cannot have a middle class moral culture when you have polygamy. And so all those Protestants knew it and said, you're out of here. Not going to have it. We're not going to permit polygamy. And Lincoln considered the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church the two greatest dangers of this country. And it's recorded in 50 years in the Church of Rome by Chinookie. Well, I, I I look carefully, and I noticed now that the, the Mormons have always continued to celebrate December twenty fifth as as one of their holy days. So Mormonism Mormonism is quite a bizarre kind of cult, and it, it got started right around the same time that uh, if you go back, if you look at New Haven, Connecticut, the the uh, 
the Skull and Bones order at Yale was started there at that at 1832, and also the Knights of Columbus, their their church at St. Mary's there was was established in 1833 in New Haven. The the, the Knights of Columbus were established in 1881 or 82. Skull and Bones was established in 1832. Right. But I find it intriguing that the Jesuits would set up their Knights of Columbus in the same city with their Skull and Bones Yale University Mm -hmm. because they controlled them both. Yeah, that's an interesting time period when you go back. It looks like it, it around 1832, Russell, the, the, the guy, the young man of the elite, from the elite family, um, he's yep. going to go to Germany, and this is going to be right around the same yes. a year be, a year after uh, Friedrich yes. Hegel died. So it looks like yes. he's visiting Hegel's uh, funeral, and then he comes back with this supercharged uh, Skull and Bones Society. Yep. And um, and this is of course 1832. It's just 20 years before the Civil War, so this is intriguing right. to me. That's exactly right. So the Jesuits are fomenting the war between the states, and they're going to use Scottish right Freemasonry on both sides to cause it. They're going to use James Buchanan as president to foment it, help it, because he's going to send down the Star of the West to reinforce Charleston Harbor. That is an act of war. And so when he did that. The, the general that fires on Fort Sumter is a Roman Catholic Italian or a Roman Catholic Frenchman who's a Mason, Beauregard. Mm-hmm. So you got Masons on both sides fomenting the war. And the outcome will be the deliberate betrayal of the Southern people through the leadership of the South. Jefferson Davis, by the way, England was not on the side of the South, England was on the side of the North. Uh, the Pope was openly on the side of the South, but he was secretly on the side of the North. Remember, they always have an open but false policy, a secret but true policy. Well, also the French had some some platoons or some um, brigades of soldiers right there in Mexico, and they tried to <laughs> knock down the the Democratic government there, the, the Republican government there, and tried to install another uh, monarchy, another uh, imperialist, Maximilian the Third or, or whatever. And they, yeah, so that was him. They were prepared That's to they were prepared to invade from the south. That's Let's correct. Say. And however, the you have the resistance of the Mexicans under Benito Juarez, who was the greatest Mexican in Mexican history. And Benito Juarez was one responsible calling for the suppression of the papacy. They kicked out the Archbishop of Mexico City, and he was calling for the expulsion of the Jesuits, and they poisoned him at his desk. So the following year, in 1873, Mexico expelled the Jesuits. And Maximilian III was shot in a firing squad. So the Jesuits were foiled in the attempt of, of having the uh, Mexicans uh, attack into the south. But the southern men would have utterly repulsed it. No question about that. But that was a distraction. That was a distraction. The, the Pope is a distraction siding with Jefferson Davis and sending a portrait of himself to Jefferson Davis. That's all a distraction. Real deal about centralizing power in Washington after the war and to destroy the historic white Protestant South, which includes the black Baptists, because of all the blacks in the South, one-third of them were praying men. Mm-hmm. So the Jesuits out were to destroy them, too. That, that, that history, and that, that I mean, that kind of, I know that there was issues with Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, he ended up kind of working for the FBI, but but the, the, he represented the the kind of well-churched and, and the upbringing of, of, um, of black men in the, the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s that were, and these were men who, who maintained their marriages, who, who, wrote, who raised their children in their homes. They were Christian men. That's true. Many of them were Christian men, but they were played. Right. 
That's, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like when they, after they murdered Martin Luther King Jr. and they murdered uh, Malcolm X uh, and then John F. Kennedy, uh, yeah, I think that the point is, is that they ultimately were not going to allow uh, this black culture in America to be a Christian culture to come up. And now you have like little Wayne and you have the rap gangsters with the face tattoos. That seems like a much more preferable black culture that they've designed there. Correct. But remember, King was a part of it. King was booing if you listen to Steve Copley. He writes with the version of booing. Jesse Jackson was involved in education. That's why he didn't have a tie on. The guy who was blamed, who got blamed for it, never did it. It was another military assassination, just like Kennedy. Right. And the one who thought of was Francis Cardinal Spellman. Well, it was Terrence Cardinal Cook at that time in 1968. But Spellman oversaw the assassination of JFK and Malcolm X. So it was, it was, it was for the purpose of stopping. It was the purpose of destroying black businesses and black culture, and that's what the Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Act of 1964, did. The big corporations started moving in the black communities, pushing out the black businessmen. It ruined them, and that's exactly what the Jesuits wanted to then incite them to hate all white men in general, so they can use them for a race war against white people, which has been raging now for many years. To kill ten white people. They rape 100 white women a day, and that's going to continue until ultimately the white people, paganized as they are, not reading the Bible and not knowing true history, are going to run into the arms of the new right, Donald Trump and all of these other centers, so we can have a new right dictatorship, and that's exactly where the Jesuits want to go. I think it's interesting now because you you had this point of view for some time, and it might have seemed you know out of the ordinary, strange. But as we move forward in time, it looks like that that's exactly what's happening. It's curious that um, I'm suspicious of Donald Trump. He looks like he was he he put out this new law that you have the right to try, which is you can try any you know any experimental vaccine or any experimental drugs that you want, and uh, the, the limitations for for protecting yourself or taking away. And then right after that, they have the outbreak at the end of his presidency there, the outbreak of, of uh, COVID-19. And then there's this international push uh, for a World Health Organization lockdowns across the entire world. And it looks like the, the, the vaccines that uh, were, were started under Trump. So I'm, I'm kind of it looks like he played right. despite being right. Republican or whatever. Trump had Fauci. Right. Fauci was a criminal. He was proven to be a criminal by John Rappaport and some other uh, some other individuals with the AIDS bit. Uh, he was a murderer. So what's what's Trump doing putting Fauci at the head of this? Because Fauci is the whole time. Yeah, he had him up there the whole time. And then in the it's it's strange because it, the, the the argument now is that Fauci went behind his back. And went and kept doing the the, the Wuhan uh, trials with the, in the laboratory in Wuhan and kept experimenting with these um, with these viruses uh, behind Trump's back. So I don't know how you could do anything behind the president's back. It seems crazy. They're just trying to make Trump look good. That's nonsense. Trump knew all about this. He he wanted to have the military give the vaccine. And furthermore, Trump put Biden in office. Without Donald Trump refusing to declare martial law for the purpose of counting the ballots, go on posters and after counting the ballots, we could have done all five days ending this, showing that he would have won by a landslide. Instead of that, he refuses to do it, and he thereby enables Biden to be declared to be the president. Trump put 
Biden in office. Well, there's another angle too. Too as we're building up uh, towards this this whole controversy, it seems that the Trump had with the election uh, during the whole time. There's this weird propaganda mechanism that's taking place called Q, the QAnon thing, and and, and there's these um, kind of unaccountable voices that are spread. Yeah, it was. It totally was. So that really, that QAnon thing stirred up the Patriot movements and really led to January 6th, where Trump Trump had a a, a rally right there in Washington, and as soon as people came, when they were pissed, over to the Capitol, they just started beating them up and arresting them. Now, here's what happened. Most of those people were white people that are decent people and work hard every day. The one that incited that riot was Antifa. And their Black Lives Matter and their Proud Boys, that was not a bunch of Trump supporters. But they could have just put on a red hat. That's what it looked like to me. They put on red hats and they pretended to be Trump supporters. And then they also ordered the Capitol Police to stand down. Mm -hmm. And the Capitol Police encouraged them, waving them up. It was all done by this leftist, socialist, communist uh, boys that pulled this off to blame Trump to create more sympathy for him. They're so they're creating a dialectic. There's a, there's a red right. and blue, left and right yes. dialectic. Right. Yes, that's a left and right dialectic that the Jesuits control both sides. The ultimate question is to what end? What is the you got thesis, antithesis, and then you have your uh, synthesis. What's the synthesis? It's the new right that they've been wanting to bring to power since they brought the Nazis over here after World War II. And the two books that you need to read on this, I may have already read them, it's called The Beast Reawakens by Martin Lee, who's a Roman Catholic, wrote for a National Catholic Reporter. And the other one is called, uh, written by Betty Claremont, and it's called uh, The Neo-Catholics, uh, Instituting a Christian Nationalism in America. And no, I think that Malta, and yeah. so those are the two important books. It's the new right is where they're going. I think that as far as the American populace having been dumbed down over time, and just the powerful instruments of of the propaganda, you know, in the in the, the control of the calendar, for instance. I mean, it looks like to me that Christianity now is is from from the American point of view is uh, Roman Catholicism. So you have all the, the, the school the, in, the, in the schools, all the kids are inundated with uh, St. Patrick's Day and, and, and Valentine's Christmas. Day and Christmas, Christmas and New Year's. That's all, all there is. Yeah. Yep, so right. the, the history of the Protestant legacy of, of, of uh, Christianity that was here in America is gone. People don't remember. They don't know what it is. That's right. And they've totally repeated the Reformation. They call it Thanksgiving Turkey Day. They have no idea what the Puritan uh, pilgrims accomplished then when you had 90 people there. 90 Indians were also there. They had peace with the Indians for 40 years. Didn't come over here to take their property. So it's all a bunch of anti-white, anti-Protestant, anti-Bible propaganda, year in and year out by every university in this country and by the press. Okay, so let's break that down. The the anti-white movement. Now, if you look at it carefully, we have to go back in time. I mean, if you go back to the Council of Trent, and that's kind of why I I want to connect the Council of Trent with um, Prince Metternich's Congress of Vienna, the Holy Alliance, it seems like it's just a reinstitution of the Council of Trent, talking about politically that we're going to, and if you look at the years, 1815 to 1822, and then Cherie in 1825, it seems like that they're planning out the next centuries ahead. The Treaty of Cherie was uh, 1822. That's the Congress of Vienna when you have the Treaty of Cherie. 
in Italy. That's 1822. Right. Not 1835. Well, 1822 is the Treaty of Verona, and then in 1825, from my reading, they, they get together again in, in Cherie and continue the whole thing, which is all probably a continuation of the Holy Alliance. It just it's really, it's really secret. It's not You can't find much to read about it. It's... You know, so I covered my book. I have it in my book, and also it's mentioned in uh, the suppressed truth about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by Burke McCarty, written in 1924. But as far as the left is, the left is arguing that that uh, colonialism has brought all these whiteies over to this new land that don't belong here. But really, philosophically, that's really just a continuation of the argument that the Puritans and the Baptists and the Protestants who, who, who escaped from Europe, from the Inquisition, and came to America uh, right. really need to be targeted now. So That's correct, because who broke the Pope's temporal power with the Bible and with the, and with the, um, the great uh, 30 Years' War ending that? Adolphus, uh, yeah. It was, white, it was white men that were Bible-reading and that were uh, led by nationalists, put people loyal to their country. That's the Germans, the English, the Dutch, the Scotch, the French to a certain degree. So the, the enemy, the great enemy of the post-white power structure are white men, particularly white men that read the Bible, that are Calvinistic, believing in the sword of just defense, white men that are armed with weapons to resist a military government or a tyranny. So that's why the white men are being targeted. Once they finish us off, they will be easy pickings for the Jesuits when they bring over their Russians and their savage Muslims and their savage red Chinese because they will have used the blacks here to beat down the whites so that they are less able to fight the invaders. No, I think it's it's interesting because we're looking at a slow... I mean, if you look today, the, the, the move of the of the world, of the, the World Health Organization, of global, the global machinery kind of comes to life with this COVID-19 thing. And it seems to me that every single year we have a little outbreak of a flu. And every year Walgreens used to offer free flu shots if you wanted to, you know, if you felt like you were lucky, maybe you would try the flu shot that year. But it seems like they've just taken that whole scientific theory and just it made it into like a weapon against democracy across the a world. A weapon against the older white people that were used to having a limited republic. That's who they want to eliminate, the older whites. That's why this filthy injection, this inoculation, was put upon the older whites in the old folks' homes. So it's the elimination of that generation. This, this millennial generation couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. Hmm. This millennial generation is going to lose this country. Right. And so that's why they have to kill off the older folks, because they know what, how it was. It could teach their younger children. But again, one thing on colonialism, colonialism was a blessing to the blacks in Africa. They got the gospel, they got civilization, they got culture. So what that they were in a subordinate condition? Better running around naked and killing each other in tribal wars. Well, really, Eric, they, they couldn't be in a superior position because they could barely count or read. I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm going to say at that point in development in Africa, a lot of those tribes were not at a place where they could, you know, dig a well or do anything to, to advance. The, you know, they had to, to work with these, you know, more advanced cultures and societies that, like, I mean, at that at that time when they're getting slaves out of Africa, uh, Beethoven is creating his seventh symphony. So. Why not? Why didn't they have wells? Why didn't they have metallurgy? Why didn't they have organized armies? Why not? I think that the the ethics that you uh, you teach your children continue to perpetuate generationally, and you either develop or you stay stagnant. As a, as a no, no, they've only been out of the bush for six hundred years. 
And so if you leave them to that, that's what they'll always be. The only time black men invent anything when they're living in a white Protestant culture where they have the ability to do so, like George Washington Carver and, mm. and the Dr. Drew who, who invented blood transfusions. They only do it in the midst of white Protestant cultures. They don't do it in the midst of white Catholic cultures. Well, the, now speaking of, of white Protestant cultures, it's it's curious to me the, the the whole subterfuge surrounding World War II with Hitler. Hitler is going to be an Austrian, apparently from Vienna, which at some point was a part of the German state, but not anymore. But so he ends up somehow with the the blessing of of uh, von Papen, uh, Franz von Papen, a Knight of Malta. He ends yeah. up getting Hitler into the as a chancellor of Germany, and that will be the end of the high Protestant German civilization, which at that point was like inventing inventing science, like they, they had, they were the greatest technologically, scientifically advanced culture in the world in, in the 1920s. Am I, am I missing something? Right. Okay. Absolutely correct. Well, here's why. This is called the Second Thirty Years' War. From 1914 to 1945, for the purpose of destroying historic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Germany, as well as and using Bavaria to that end, which is solidly Roman Catholic. So, the World War One destroyed much of the German manhood. World War, because Germany was betrayed by Kaiser Wilhelm II and Ludendorff and Hindenburg. Those were the three great traitors. There was no Jewish stab in the back. That's nonsense. Right. They blamed the loss of the Jews when it was really Kaiser Wilhelm, who refused to, and remember this, who refused to evacuate one million troops out of Russia with after the Brest-Litovsk Agreement in 1917. So those troops could have been immediately trained across Germany to go to the Western Front to annihilate the British and the French and the English. But he didn't do it. So... Well, it's it's interesting to me that if you go back, you go back to World War One, the British and the French and the English, and really you still have the same factions from the Thirty Years' War under ostensibly under different reasons politically for being in the war, but it's really just a deterioration and, and a destruction of these same powers. You know, again, Correct. so Correct. Obel said, who was a Roman Catholic Rhinelander trained by Jesuits, he said. One of the purposes is to move the boundaries as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia. Right. And so absolutely it was a religious war. The repression of the white Protestants of Lutheran Prussia and, of course, then East, Eastern Germany. And that's exactly what happened when they, when they betrayed their white Lutheran soldiers in Russia, Hitler ordering von Paulus to surrender. 91,000 troops went into Russia, only 5,000 returned, and most of them were Catholics. It was an utter decimation of the Reformation in Germany. Well, there you're talking about the religious nature, the, the occult religious nature of World War One, but yet it, it, it becomes more clear, too, when you look at the fact that the, the British took their advanced navy down to the Ottoman Empire, which had been around for 1,500 years or so, and just destroyed it, and then after they destroyed the Ottoman Empire, they made, uh, they carved it up and made Saudi Arabia, Iran, yep. Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan. Yep, yep, yep. And, and also Palestine. So those are just complete, uh, that, that's the British cutting off the Ottoman Empire into different parts and creating these, they, they created the, the Kingdom of Sao, they made it, and they created the Kingdom of, the, the, the kingdom of Jordan, yeah, they created the Kingdom, of, so they made these kings, they didn't create um, democratic, uh, uh, popular okay. government, they created monarchies. And they were all Masons. King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia was a Freemason. You have Hussein of Jordan, they're all Freemasons. And so the British, the Jesuits running the British did this. But remember, there could be no revived Latin kingdom of Jerusalem as long as there was the Ottoman Empire. 
So they had to do away with the Ottoman Empire. Well, that's what that's what the Crusade War was all about. It was always about trying to control the Holy Land, Jerusalem, for the Pope. And then when the when the Muslims came and took it away, they they couldn't get it back again until World War One. Am I am I right? Nineteen seventeen, when Allenby took Jerusalem. That's exactly correct. Mm -hmm. Allenby got off his horse. He said, "I will not enter Jerusalem as a conqueror. I will enter it as a pilgrim." Right. But he did not know. But that was the ultimate quest of the Templars. I mean, not that they exist anymore, but the the whole legacy of the Templar Knights was to defend Jerusalem, to hold it as as part of Christendom for the Pope and for for holy religion. And and when they when they lost it, they you know, they couldn't and get it well, back. The Lord set them back. Right. The mystery of iniquity was getting too far along, so the Lord sent them back and suppressed them. But the night, the poor knights of the temple, their purpose is to build Solomon's temple. Right. And so the first step was you got to get the uh, Jerusalem out of the hands of the Muslims. The second step, you got to establish a, the uh, revived Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, which we call Israel. And I, I defend the right of the Jews to their land, but the Pope doesn't look at it like Israel. They look at it as the revived Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. Right. So the third step, to have a war there, to destroy the Dome of the Rock and Alaska Mosque, so they can build the temple. And that almost happened in 1967 with the 67 war. What happened was is that um, the Jesuits, in control of LBJ, sent the USS Liberty over there to be deliberately bombed by the Israeli right. military, run by the Jesuits, so the Egyptians could be blamed, and then American troops could invade Cairo. And Russia said, USSR said, if that happens, we're going to bomb the Dome of the Rock. And you can see all of this in a tremendous video called Sacrificing Liberty. It's a four-DVD set, and you want to get it. It's interesting, so, you're, you're talking about uh, Russia there, there's an interesting history there, because it looks like the Tsar, part of World War One too, was the destruction of the Tsar of Russia, but before that, the problem with the Tsar, uh, the previous Tsar, was that he he put his, his uh, advanced navy on the east and west coast of America during the Civil War in order to protect yeah, America. John Alexander II. Right. He protected America from, from invasion from, from, uh, from Europe. Because he knew that the country was stable, destabilized, and he decided that he was going to work to preserve America's future. I maintain that he did that to keep the French out from helping us, as the French had in the past. And he also, well, the French was under Napoleon III, I think, at that time. Yeah, no, yeah, Napoleon III. So then, but this is all the aftermath of of of, of uh, the Congress of Vienna, right? Let me finish. Okay. Yeah, that's right. But my point is that in blockading, now when they have a blockade, they blockade the South so that they couldn't get any medicines in for their wounded. That's a complete violation of the of the, of the law of war. They could never do that. So they blockaded any medicines coming into the people of the South. And they used the Russian blockade to accomplish that. Okay, gotcha. The South fought the war. The British, the Russians, the North, they had to fight the world. And then they were betrayed by Robert E. Lee and, and filthy Jefferson Davis. Robert E. Lee sacrifices his armies at Gettysburg deliberately. And they had, before they could do that, they had to get rid of Jackson. So Robert E. Lee had Jackson poisoned by that filthy major, Hunter McGuire. And then after that, right up to Chancellorsville. And right after Chancellorsville, you got Gettysburg. So Jackson's not there. Longstreet does not attack when he's supposed to. Between Longstreet and Lee, they sacrifice half the army. That's something that you describe as what happened, uh, clearly happened with Napoleon's army, too. It's strange. Uh, so Napoleon is going to come, right when the Jesuit order 
is going to be extinguished by a papal bull, there, then suddenly the rise, uh, it really also the destruction of the, the French king, the, the ancient French monarchy was destroyed during that time too. I guess, what, was it the, he, his father had allowed the Edict of Nantes and the Edict of uh, Fontaine, you know, they allowed for religious liberty in France, I think. That's right, that's exactly right. The Joseph's were behind the uh, Louis the Fourteenth. And a revocation of the Edict of Nantes. France didn't publish the Bible for a hundred years. Um, and they also, then when the Jesuits were suppressed by the Pope, what happens? They foment the you know, Napoleonic French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. And they control Napoleon, Robespierre, Danton, all of them. To the end, then Napoleon sacrifices his men out of Russia so that all the true patriots of Europe are going to get killed. Well, the original triumvirate that was r ruling France was uh, Napoleon and Abby Saez, and was it Robespierre? So, I mean, one of the actual... Robert, Robert Doulos. Right. His name is Robert Doulos. So That was the consulate, the three. Right. So, actually, so one of the... So, Abby Saez is, is a Jesuit. Is that, is that right? He's a Jesuit. Right. I show his picture. I show his portrait in my book. So, they deliberately sacrificed the freedom-loving people of Europe because they joined Napoleon out of different countries, sacrificed him, and then he also is going to sacrifice him at Waterloo. Because Napoleon, according to Andrew Stonewall Jackson, said, the Waterloo, he took up the wrong position in battle. And he sacrificed his army. It doesn't seem like a mistake that he would make. Now, it's interesting because during that time in Waterloo, um, there was a lot of confusion back in, in, in London and England about the outcome of the war. And if Napoleon had won, then, of course, there was nothing standing between him and the invasion of, of, of England. And so during that time, it looks like certain men who received the word um, invested properly. Rothschild was involved with that, where they invested and bought up the entire British economy for pennies. And then when the war came in that the British had won, they were suddenly mon monumentally, colossally wealthy men. Uh, That's when the Jesuits took the markets of England, using their bankers at the time, the Rothschilds. Right. That's correct. Hey, brother, i got to go. It's 20 after 11. We have church at 11.30, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We'll have to do it again. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time very much. Okay. Lord bless. Oh, you're Lord bless. You have a great day.